And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, listeners, on this fresh, cold morning. Um, it is a bit wet out there. Hope all of you are keeping warm. This is Lalita Chalaya, and I've got a guest in the studio, Kieran Tully, who is going to help me deliver this program to you today. Morning, Kieran. Uh, good morning, Lali. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Very gently spoken, intelligent man. Oh, yes. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> it's modesty for you. Okay, we've got um, a very um, compact program today. We've got three live interviews, and we'll start with Kieran. Um, and we've got Kishan Karup- um, Karupanan from Wollongong University. And we also have um, Scott Jordan from Tasmania uh, talking about so uh, various issues. So we've got uh, a broad coverage of um, important issues that will matter uh, in the elections now that we're in election mode and hope all of you are enjoying the um, election campaign. <laughs> Some of you might be bored. But okay, so let's launch it at this one. We've got Kieran here who has written a paper on 3D printers. Now, I struggled with this because for me printing means there's a printer and a piece of paper comes out and you get an image on the paper. Yep. But Kieran is, is um, going to talk us about, and some of you out there listening may know what this is. I, I didn't and it took me a little while to grasp this. And Kieran's, Kieran's written a paper that is uh, being actually published and as, um, he wrote this as a second year student and admirably it's being published and it's unusual for a student to be able to publish a paper. So here we have a very talented young man who's going to tell us, or explain to us, the concept of 3D printers. But more than that, he's going to explore the notion of um, 3D printers being able to solve society's ills, which both of us, Kieran and myself, challenge. So that is the, 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 nut or the crux of this discussion. So, Kieran, tell us about 3D printers first. How do you – I mean, in my head, I don't – I cannot um, conceive mm. printing a house. Yeah. How does it work? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's this new technology that um, if you think of sort of a, a box, a wireframe box, um, oh, I'm not, sorry, not the mic. <laughs> that's okay. Um, a wireframe box <coughs> has got a little um, uh, sort of like a little crane in it that runs up and down, and it deposits small layers of plastic uh, uh, along a certain... Uh, grid and then it goes up slightly and does more and it's informed by a um, uh, a program on a computer okay. and so building up layer by layer it, it makes shapes that are, are finished as okay well. so, um, so you have to have a large printer um well it depends if you're doing something small you can have you know if you're just making a little toy yeah um but uh, there's been i think i've seen online people who have printed like the f- chassis of cars and things like that with really right. really big ones and i heard there was something about a bridge being printed, oh. um, like the bits of it, I think, yes. um, and then put together. So w- what's really quite interesting about it is that um, 
you have sort of a finished product emerge uh, yep. from from the you know just raw materials. Uh, there's uh, it's it, the production process is really quite uh, it's very highly automated and and made quite short and, conde- and condensed. Okay. Now, uh, let's explore this notion. Uh, people are always looking for silver bullets. I also call it a Superman, you know, um, concept. You know, how can uh, technological uh, possibility like that solve society's ills, like homelessness? You know, you can print a house. How, how does that come into this picture you've been painting? Um, well, there's some people who think that uh, the possibility of being able to have lots of distributed manufacturers might um, make uh, communities, if they could purchase something like this, be able to print a lot of the things they need. But you're right, there is quite a big problem in this in this sort of idea because you know you've got to have the things to, to print with, and you know often it's quite expensive uh, uh, plastics. Mm-hmm. Though there are developments to being able to pay, uh, print with metals and things, I'm, I'm not sure how how, how far that's come. Uh, in the last few months, but um, you know, property as a, as a, as a, as as existing, uh, of course, the community's got to have that in order to have space to do things like and, and all this sort of thing. And that's not something that will be solved by this alone. It's um, this this is a technology amidst uh, you know society. Um, so while it might have the potential to make um, manufacturing uh, less reliant on you know single uh, blocks of very large capital mm-hmm. required to make factories and the like, um, it, it still will always be situated within society and it's not going to be a magic bullet, as, as you've said. Mm. It's, it's, I find the concept that one idea of how society produces, whether it's housing or whether it's, um, you know, well, you can't obviously print food. Mm. For a start, yeah. you know, that's, this is, yeah. so how are you going to solve the problems of poverty if you can't print food? Yeah, this is, this is a, um, a problem which uh, some people have if they talk about sort of like the digital economy or you know things like this as being. Um, there was an article which I talk a little bit about in the but um, in the in paper, paper. Yeah. Um, by Paul Mason that was sort of saying the digital economy will um, overthrow capitalism and you know change 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 everything. And you think, well, but people are still going to need. Food. Yes. People are still going to need all these material things. Um, uh, that's the sort of base of the social metabolism, as that's it were. That's right. That's right. Um, and and it's not just the technical th- way of things, way things are produced, but it's also the way society determines who owns what. Uh, that that is intimately tied to all this. Okay. So you talk about social relations in in in, in arguing your your point, but we'll come to that later. But first, I want to try and grasp how your opponents, so to speak, the opponents of your idea, uh, are able to argue this will solve all problems in society? I mean, what are their points? What points are they trying to make, so to speak? Um, well, it's quite a, normally quite a simplistic view of society as, as being determined um, entirely by the sort of the, the economics uh, base uh, of, of society. Um, this um, there's in sort of uh, Marxist lingo there's the base and the superstructure and some not all as I, I consider myself a Marxist and and I Good. don't subscribe to to this view mm-hmm. um, but some some people do think that the base entirely determines the superstructure which is the society um, so if you if you look at the world like from this from this angle if you change the way some of the stuff is done at the economic base, mm-hmm. uh, they say, well, then that will just change the superstructure and it will just flow on from from that. Um, so it's a quite a, 
a, you know, a single... It's, it's single a very direction. economic approach to life. Yeah, yeah economistic, yeah. And economy solves everything. And that there doesn't, it isn't influenced by the, the society and the, and the relations that work, up, work upon it. And, um, and so that's how you can come to this idea that, that 3D printers will uh, you know, fundamentally change the way society works without having people having to struggle for more justice or anything like that. Mm. The, what I don't understand is, okay, you've got your 3D printers, and you can print all those material things that it's supposed to be able to print, and, and this may improve and, and go into different fields. But people are going to be able to afford it. Um, yes, uh, well, this is right, but the, 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 the proponents of 3D printers say that um, they're mo- we're moving quite rapidly towards a point where we might be able to print more 3D printers with 3D printers, oh which, would, which would, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a bit of a scary image. But yes. um, uh, they can, there's someone, I think, in the U- United Kingdom who's been um, talking about this, uh, and they, you can, they can do most of it, except they can't do the motor and a few of the other really complex parts. Um, so the idea is that um, it would only be the cost of the resources going in, which, mm. which, which would perhaps not be so prohibitively expensive that a community couldn't afford them. And if a community had it, the idea would be that they could, you know, share it. Um, but then you've also got the that uh, you know a whole lot of things used as precious metals, um, you know, motors and microchips and all this sort of thing. And I mean, where do these come from? They. they I was just going to say, where are they getting the raw materials from? Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be uh, even if it was to entirely replace all the way we manufacture today, it would still, um, there'd still be the whole commodity chain behind it, um, you know, and uh, we know with things like coltan um, uh, that's uh, mined by essentially slaves in, in, um, in the Congo. Yes, um, yeah, uh, you, you, know, you mentioned it, in your paper. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we, a high technology society depends on those precious minerals, so this, how is that 3D printer going to liberate them? And also the, the, the cost of buying these so-called printed products mm. wouldn't be cheap. And how are the poor people going to afford it? And it's, it's almost contradictory because you're going to print these things. Let's take for house for an example. It's not going to be cheap to buy it. So the people who are producing the raw materials that go into making all these products won't be able to afford the house the three printers come out with. Well, yeah, and and also the, the the land, the property of the land. I mean, we live in Melbourne, where it's uh, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to buy a house. Um, uh, you got to get your dad and mum to shell out. <laughs> yeah, or just live with them forever. Um, uh, um, but but yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of raw materials in in a house, and um, and yeah, I it, I can't imagine that 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 this manufacturing alone would change the fact that people are in poverty um, with, with relation to that. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm struggling with, with, with the, this idea that your proponents, um, the, I mean, the, 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 the proponents of, of this uh, production arguing, how can you argue um, that this will solve society's problems when more than, well, 99% may not be able to afford it? I don't understand. I, I'm trying to grasp it. it it's well, not working <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, um, I, I think the basic idea is that um, if if you could have lots of small distributed and possibly communally owned 3D printers, that it would mean that the manufacturing sector would not be um, would be completely undermined. Um, so you socialised the printing process. That would 
I think that is the idea of the people who, who see this in quite um, deterministic fashion. Yes. But as the, we've talked about commodity change and things, these wouldn't be broken. Um, and there's also, you know, whole lots of goods and services, which you know, we live in Australia, that's a very large part of, of our, the way our economy functions and it functions like that um, in relation to uh, the sort of peripheries that are ex- exploited um, uh, through the manufacture of, of goods and things like that. Um, uh, so, so, but these 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 ideas and these printers and so on currently exist only in uh, rich countries. Um, I think there have been moves to to distribute them around. There was someone who went to to Africa with one of the ones that can print other ones, um, and, oh, and okay. was trying to set them up in communities and things. Um, but I don't think it's it's really taken off um, so far. Um, but. But there, there are a lot of people who are very well-meaning who are, who are, you know, involved in creating these these things, and they see it very much as as a way that they can help um, the global south, as as some people put it. Okay. Exploited countries. So who's paying for these machines? Want to take it to the third world? Because I did a paper with my long time ago, um, where you've got all this modern machinery that gets taken to third world countries. And if something breaks down, they haven't trained any technicians to repair it mm. or even to maintain it. So that is, was, a, was a huge problem with NGOs and other um, organizations, supposedly well-meaning do-gooders, mm. go to the third world with all the first world equipment. Mm. None of the th- people in the countries that go to understand those machines, or whatever they take. And eventually when the the... the the organizations withdraw from those countries, those machines go to waste. Mm. That's, that's what jumps in front of me when you're explaining, well, they've gone to Africa. Then what? Are they going to train technicians? Are they going to enable them to maintain it and, and, and the rest of it? Although the whole process is, is to me, um, it's not a practical solution. Well, um, I, I, I'd be inclined to agree with you, but um, a proponent of this sort of way of thinking might say that you can actually print the replacement parts, which I think was a really big problem as well for um, uh, sort of machinery that was imported from Western, you know, finance by World Bank and things put country into debt mm. and then make them dependent upon the, the industri- industrial right. production of the, of the metropolis. Um, uh, but yes, I, I'm not sure from what I've read, and, and in this paper I, wrote, I did write it, quite a while ago, so um, and I haven't kept up to date entirely with uh, everything, but I don't think that's really being talked about because it tends to be um, it tends to be people who have a very crude understanding of society, I think, who are putting this view forward, and it's what I'm arguing against, and, um, and because I think society is much more complex than just the economics, and the economics is always something that's enmeshed within a whole lot of social relations, about the way we produce things, the way who owns things, um, the way we, we view the world, which is influenced by her history. We'll go into details of that in a minute. We'll take a quick break and come back to that very notion I was going to go into in the next oh. half. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, this is Solidarity Breakfast. I'm Lalita Chalaya, and I have got Kiran Tali with me as a guest in the studio. And we are talking about 3D printers and a proposal that it could change society big time. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, we were going to talk about social relations issues that you mentioned. So a part of your argument is that the social relations and the real world basically is far bigger and more complex than the simplistic view that 
a technical solution can solve all society's yep. problems. Now, when you talk about social relations, I want you to explain what, what you mean by that. Um, well, social relations are really the, the way in society uh, uh, people relate to each other. So if, um, if you know, there's a landlord and a, a tenant, the relation they have is a, a social relation and it's one of, of, of someone in a dominant position and one in a subordinate position. Um, and this, this happens all throughout the way we organise production because, um, you know, we, we, it's a capitalist mode of production, so you have a, a, a capitalist class who owns owns the means of production in in Marxist terms and um and and uh, working oh, what, sorry I gestured too much when I talked That's okay he likes to move his hands around he's knocking things about uh, first time on radio so you excused uh, <laughs> uh, thank you um and, and and then you know uh, the the other half of of that relation is a, a working class who um who don't own the means of production have to sell their have to sell their labor and these are these are social relations that are in that are in in sort of engaged with the way we technically produce things as well. Hmm. So <clears throat> when you talk about the ownership of the means of production, hmm. what are we talking about? Uh, the ownership of, of a factory, for example, is the classic one. There. But um, the ownership of uh, something that provides a service, like a, a hairdressing salon and, and, and the premises and, um, and, and often the implements as well, though not always. Um, so this is really the, the way the things we use to do things and act upon the world that we think that, that society needs. Um, um, uh, and yes, that, that, that's what I mean. Human relations, basically, isn't mm. it? It's how people relate to one another mm. as human beings, hopefully. Some hopefully, yeah. I think that's often... <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's always interesting. When you, when you talked about things like hairdressing, I'm wondering how do 3D printers cut hair? Well, it seems a bit terrifying. Maybe they put a bowl <laughs> on your head with scissors in it. Um, um, yeah, but there's all these things that, that we do um, and that if you're sp- to speak of full automation, um, you know, uh, all those would have to be done as well. Mm. It wouldn't but, just be production. But the proponents of the three printers um, of, of this particular view are saying that the, the problems in society are the ones that they want to solve, not the everyday interactions of people which we <coughs> excuse me, classify as social relations. We're talking about in social relations... The, the crux of the matter is they're talking about the mode of production, as you mentioned before. Mm. They think they can take away the capitalist relations mm. with the 3D printers. That's the point that I'm trying to, to, to unpick, and it's, it's not quite getting there. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, uh, one example that I use in the paper as to why these, these problems that are affecting people aren't just technical is the example of a, a child dying of, of an easily preventable disease through medicine. Now... It's not the, te- the the technical problem is uh, is you know the disease as it were, but this isn't the reason that and if the child dies, it's not because we can't make enough of the of the vaccine or we can't um, you know provide healthcare and things like this. It's because of the social relations that say, well, this this person um, who you know they they they're living probably in a, a poor community, um, uh, perhaps Aboriginal Australia. The, the, it's the social relations that say that. That determine whether or not that, per, that that child gets the medicine they need. Mm. It's not it's not our ability to make medicine as such. So uh, that that's what I'm really I, I, that's what I argue in this paper that uh, that social relations are always integral to uh, to any uh, technical production and never separate. Mm. So the social relations are governed by 
you know, the, the technical solutions are governed by social relations. Yes. Yeah, That's yeah. what you're trying to say. Yes. So the, uh, in your example, you're talking about the child medicine. So the, technically speaking, the solution exists, mm. but because of the type of social relations that govern that society in which this te- technology exists, makes it unaffordable for the child to have that yeah, and, and because, solution. And because you orientate society around profit, in this case, um, you know, uh, multinational pharmaceutical companies exist to make profit. Um, uh, because of that, is the, that's the reason the child doesn't receive the medicine, not the can we or can we not make it. So it's a capitalist society you're attacking, young man. Oh, I am, yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> right down my, the part of my thinking. Now, the the other issue I want to talk about is, you know, the printers can be can be made, and printers can print other printers. In uh, in the proponents of these things, do they talk about who will actually own these machines? Because firstly, they are expensive to make, at mm. least today. Mm. Only large companies can make them. Therefore, they fall under the ownership of the capitalists. Mm. There have been moves, and this is what. The, the proponents play up the, the, to make them less expensive, um, and there are one. How? How? How are they going to uh, make it less expensive? Uh, the, uh, they argue because the price of um, uh, sorry, uh, industrial machinery tends to fall um, uh, as as it's made, made, made becomes cheaper to make and things oh, like this. The same argument. Um, yes. And I mean mass production. And there are 3D printers that can that are can be bought at, for you know a couple hundred dollars and things like that. So um, in the past they were. They were, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They were only available for really highly specialised manufacturing, but it, the price has reduced, and the, the comp- like, how difficult they are to make has been reduced. But um, mm. okay, so in the end, we come to the conclusion that technical solutions are governed by social relations. Well, and they're never outside them. No, the political system is a capitalist system. Therefore, mm. the social relations govern the accessibility yes okay cool all right what we'll do is take a quick break and we're going to go and get the next person who's going to talk about the tarkine and that's going to be an interesting um uh, discussion because there are all sorts of things happening at the front okay we have scott jordan from tasmania on the line and we will talk to him about the tarkine morning scott welcome to 3cr uh, good morning. Yes. Now, so you um, belong to a campaign that is uh, called Save the Tarkine. Will that be right? Uh, that, that's right. Uh, we're a um, conservation group based in northwest Tasmania who um, are that for yeah, 22 years now. Um, our, our mission to, to try and protect the area um, known as the Tarkine in, in northwest Tasmania. And, and, and the Tarkai is one of the world's greatest um, temperate forests, and it has um, it's been running. It runs continuously from more than for more than 70 kilometres, uh, and uh, reaching beyond the Arthur and Payman rivers. And it's uh, an, uh, it's on the listing for heritage consideration, isn't it? Yeah, look, it, it's an area that's got some outstanding um, natural values. It, it's the la- It contains the largest temperate rainforest uh, left in Australia, yep. uh, one of the largest remaining in the world, um, and uh, it contains um, a lot of other, um, I guess, biotypes as well in that we have um, extensive um, 
button grass plains and heathlands um, as you move towards the coast. And we have um, a, a very large um, area of coastline along the Southern Ocean, uh, which, which contains a, a lot of um, Aboriginal heritage sites along that coast. In fact, some of the, the highest densities of, of Aboriginal heritage sites um, in the country. And uh, it, 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 it <clears throat> has a lot of values that um, make it a special place. And the Heritage um, Council um, made a recommendation some years ago that it should be uh, listed under a national heritage listing and, and the previous government, unfortunately, um, chose to ignore that. And that's a Liberal government, yes? No, I'm, uh, it was actually the Labor government. We had, under Peter Garrett as minister, we had an emergency. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so we had a, an emergency listing placed on by Peter Garrett, but we, we had the listing then removed at the behest of mining companies by, by Minister Tony Burke. Oh, just makes you want to throw up, doesn't it? But anyway, this, this forest actually is, is extremely valuable because it's got broad categories of rainforest, rainforest types. And it's amazing the, the, the variety that, that it has. And it's unfortunate that Sri Minerals have um, set up mining there. You want to talk about that? Now, before we go ahead, you have to make a declaration that you are the candidate for the lower house. Yes? Oh, that, that's right. I'm, I'm a candidate for the Greens in the uh, lower house seat of Breton, which is the area that, that covers the Tarkoi. Yep. And suitably so. Now, tell us about the the battle between the the miners and uh, the the campaign group, and be specific about you know which government and and so on, so people are clear about what's actually happening there, because it's a it's an enormous loss to society. Yes, look, well, we've had a, a long um, battle over the last you know, five or six years with. Um, a couple of mining companies, but in particular one called Shree Minerals. Um, they come up with a proposal to uh, mine an area in in the northwest of the Tarkai, uh, an area that falls within an existing uh, conservation area. And their proposal was to go and, and mine for iron ore at a place called Nelson Bay River. Um, Nelson Bay River is an area that um, you know, had... Uh, by the company's own reports, um, 16 threatened fauna and flora species, ranging from critically endangered orchids through to um, being a, a stronghold area for disease-free Tasmanian devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we were obviously very concerned about their proposal and we, we um, campaigned against that. And unfortunately, the, the federal government saw fit to grant them environment permits under then Minister Tony Burke. Um, we then took that um, approval to the, the federal court, and the federal court ruled that um, the approval was unlawful. Uh, so that sent them back to the drawing board. There'd been a change in minister, and Minister um, Mark Butler had came in under that Labor government, and, and Minister Butler saw fit to reapprove the mine 10 days later with, with a weaker permit. Um, and so we saw mining commence at that site um, you know, a, sh- a short while after that. And uh, mining actually only lasted for seven months. The, the iron ore price was in decline at the time the company had tried to get its project up. And we, we saw that you know, the advice that we'd had all along and what we'd been trying to tell the, the politicians and, and the, the local council and others was that this mine didn't have a long-term future. It wasn't going to be the economic saviour that, that they believed it would be. 
and what we were going to end up with was a huge mess and, and no economic um, you know, outcomes from it. And so we weren't prepared to stand by and watch what this um, yeah, beautiful area be destroyed for, for, for no real benefit. Um, unfortunately, it also got its state government approvals along the way. The, the, the board of the Environmental Protection Authority in Tasmania um, granted it approval on a set of conditions and one of those conditions was that uh, they found that there was no safe or suitable location for above-ground storage of the acid-producing waste drop that comes out of the mine. Mm. Now, now what, what happens when you mine is that most of the, the ore bodies sit within a sulphide um, rock deposit, and so when you start digging up that, that rock, those sulphides become exposed to oxygen. It starts a chemical reaction, and what you produce from that reaction is sulfuric acid. And so mm. most mines have this um, issue where they have to manage their um, acid-producing waste so that they um, try and remove the oxygen from the equation and, and try and reduce the amount of acids being formed. Now, at Nelson Bay River, the answer that the EPA board had put forward was that all of that waste drop material had to be stored um, within the, the mine pit itself. Um, there was no safe or suitable above-ground location. And what we had was the, after um, the company had received its permit, uh, it then wrote back to the EPA director and asked him to um, consider giving them an amendment to the permit to allow them to put the material above ground in a way that the, the EPA board had already refused. Um, and the argument they used for for why that should happen was that they declared that they actually had 30 times as much waste-producing rock as what they declared in their application. Mm. And so rather than knock this uh, back and tell them, well, you, you can't meet your conditions, you can't mine, uh, the director made that amendment and and the company proceeded to mine for that seven months under a, a an amended permit. Um, and that was how long? What was the time moved on that amended permit? 17 months, was that? Or was it another one? Well, they only lasted for, for seven months of mining, but it took us over a year in the court to to challenge that amended permit. Um, and when we finally got it, uh, a ruling from the court, the court ruled that, in fact, the, the EPA director doesn't have the power to overturn the board, and if the board had already considered uh, the, the safe storage of the waste drop, then that's what had to stand. And so that decision was... Um, overturned and the company was told it now had to operate under the existing permit and told that it had to re- remove that above ground waste rock and put it um, into a in pit yep. storage. Now that was some um, 17 months ago that that decision was made. Mm-hmm. Um, the EPA issued a, a new environmental protection notice requiring the company to put that material back in, into the pit in a safe um, facility within 15 months. Yep. And and that deadline passed on May the 8th and the company not only hadn't put the material in but they hadn't even commenced uh, operations towards getting that material put in the pit. And it's, it's, quite, it's very um, you know, suspicious that the, the company couldn't do something in 15 months that, you know, in terms of putting the, the waste drop back in the hole when it only actually took seven months to get the rock out of the hole in the first place. Mm. So it, it really shows a contempt for both the court and for the, the EPA director mm. in, in just refusing to do, do anything about this. Um, but the, the scandal doesn't end there, I guess, is that um, the response from the EPA to having the, 
the um, the company just snub its nose at them is that instead of moving to a prosecution, uh, the, the EPA has decided that they will now assist the company in applying for an entirely new permit to store material above ground. And so it's, it's this crazy scenario where after a, the, the court's already found that they can't store above ground, uh, and the EPA has already sent them a notice requiring them to put, them, put the material back in the pit, uh, we're, we're going to spend the next two years ignoring the fact that they're in breach and helping them um, apply for a permit to let them do whatever they want to do, I guess. I don't understand what's going on, to, to be honest with you, because, you know, this is the land where uh, Bob Brown launched the massive campaign against the dam in the Franklin uh, in the 80s. It's, it's, it's a place where protests against environmental breaches, you know, it's a strong history of that. Um, at at an t- economic period in the world where the price for iron is dropping, you've got this mine playing silly buggers. What happened to the mobilizations that used to take place in Tasmania? Well, look, we, we had a very large campaign run against this mine. There was a, a vigil camp that, that set up at the gate. Um, we've we've seen um, a lot of community opposition to the project. Uh, what we've seen, I guess, as well, though, is that the the government has basically thrown out its own rules uh, around how this operation should should occur, and that we've seen, um, yeah, undoubtedly, a lot of political interference in the operation of the EPA yes. <laughs> in, in making sure that they make a decision in favour of this mine. And um, the, the reality for this mine is that even in its operation, it only employed about 30 staff. I mean, it's it's less jobs than a mid-sized McDonald's store. It was never going to be the economic saviour for the northwest of Tasmania. Um, we, we are in an area that has um, high unemployment. We've had... Um, downturns you know, in, in manufacturing and um, you know, our farmers have done it tough over recent years. And so there is a, you know, a depressed economy in the northwest. And and I think, unfortunately, the government was all too quick to, to grab hold of any promise made by a mining company that, that we could save the world with, with our mining revenues. But the, the economists at the time were all predicting that the, the iron ore price was collapsing. This company in particular needs a, a, an iron ore price of... $120 US a ton to be viable. Um, the current iron ore price is $50 a ton. Um, it, it's not predicted to go up. It's actually predicted to, to shoot yeah. towards yeah, $35 a ton That's right. in the next 18 months. And so there, yeah. there just isn't the future for this mine. Um, yeah, it, it seems it's, it's a scenario that I, it, it, the word that, that jumps into my mind is desperation. And I think this is the getting back to the elections and, and as you're standing, we must all talk about that. Um, the fact that, you know, the, the solutions to the economic, no, the solutions to unemployment, solutions to so-called growth, which I equate with profits, um, seems to be that you throw money at particular projects and you throw permits at particular projects. It's a quick fix solution. And the, the mantra that, um, you know, you, you have um, job creation and you've just broken that to, to smithereens in, in, in how you've described what's happening there. Uh, seems to be uh, <clears throat> the way the government is now conducting its, its election campaign. So I'm wondering 
how you are countering, because you've got an enormously um, uh, powerful weapon in your hands in terms of your elections that are going on, uh, and combine that with saving the Tarkine. How, how's that process pro- uh, going ahead? Look, I, I guess we've um, yeah, obviously made the Tarkine a central part of, of my campaign at this, this point. And so uh, it should be. Yeah, it's it's an important area. It's it's actually an area that um, supports a whole lot of tourism that goes on in the northwest of Tasmania as well. And um, we, we've got um, you know tourism operators who are really you know, over the last decade have reoriented their businesses around um, promoting the, the Tarkine as, as the, the wonderful wilderness um, area that it is, and, and you know leveraging off the fact that um, if you you are one of those restaurants or one of those accommodation providers in those towns surrounding the Tarkine, then there's a huge value in in making sure that area is protected and making sure that people can go in and experience a really authentic wilderness experience. And so, um, so it's, it's actually a contradiction. You've got the mines that are destroying the environment, and you've got a viable um, economic means of. Um, you know, maintaining the environment out there for, for tourism and everything. So it, it doesn't make economic sense. You know, people must realise that, surely. Yeah, well, it, the problem, I guess, is the, the disparity of power between the, the two economic groups. Um, a lot of tourism operations in the northwest of Tasmania are, are yeah, I guess your, your classic mum and dad operation. Mm. They're, um, they're small businesses, they're, they're small operators, um, Whereas a mining company comes in, they, they've got a lot of shareholder backing, they've got, you know, got a lot of government support, and and I guess there's a, a perceptual problem as well in the community that um, we know from economic reports that have been commissioned by the government that, that the Tarkine, for example, um, has been assessed as, as having the potential to create 1,100 jobs from tourism and a $53 million Visitor spend and and for a small area like Northwest Tasmania, that that's a huge impact. Whereas the Nelson Bay River mine, at its peak, um, was only ever predicted to create around 80 jobs. Um, it actually only employed about 30 in the time that it operated. And so, but what we had was a a perception in the community that that mines are big employers, and if we just get a mine, it'll save everything. And ignoring the fact that a whole lot of small employers in in the tourism sector. Um, had a far greater impact, and and so there's there was, I guess when you get into this desperation period where where the community um, is in an economic downturn and looking for answers, they they tend to want quick answers and 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 the old answers that used to work tend, tend to stick in their minds. Whereas um, it's a challenging time to um, be pushing people in a new direction. Yes. And on that note, good luck with your campaign and even more better luck with your nominations and um, so hopefully some changes can happen, you know, if, you, if the small business people can get together and launch a strong campaign with your organisation, hopefully something positive will come out of that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for being available to 3CR and have a good day. Now, announcement, a vital and very important rally today. Uh, no to racism in Moreland uh, at the Moreland uh, Coburg Mall at starting at 11 o'clock and there's a lot of kerfuffle in the press about it and, and so on but we're expecting a very large number of people to turn up over 60 organisations have endorsed this rally 
and um, many churches, many community organizations, six trade unions, and there's got a massive presence of people there. And we have uh, amazing arrangement for marshalling and security. So be brave and confident. We'll have a safe, peaceful rally, and that's what we aim to do. This is a peaceful rally to, to send a message to people that we will not tolerate racism anywhere in Australia. So all the right-wing press and right-wing um, threats by the uh, cops is um, not worth listening to. As far as we are concerned, there are a very, very small number of people who may turn up, who may not turn up. The fact that they couldn't even register a political party tells you how small they are. And there will be plenty of cops um, as well as marshals there to keep you safe if there's going to be anything at all which you suspect uh, may not be too much. And we, we will instruct them to go to obtain their own space where they can fight each other. And that's what we intend to do. <laughs> so please turn up to the rally, 11 o'clock today, at around the Moreland Li- uh, uh, Coburg Library in the mall. Now, another announcement. There's a, um, a um, dinner, actually. We are having a, um, what do you call it? It's um, looking for Messiah in all the wrong places, a comedy debate, really, really fun (laughs) function. It's it's printed in light purples. I couldn't see it. Old age affecting my eyesight. It's going to be chaired by Rod uh, Quantock, and it starts at 6.30 p.m. on the 18th of June. We have Sean Bedlam, Shirley Hood, um, Kirsty Mack, Sophie Printers, Carlos Sands, and uh, Morven Smith. Uh, tickets are $50, Solidarity, 30 waged, 22 low waged, and $12 concession. And it'll be at the Brunswick Town Hall. If you want any more information, please call 86, uh, sorry, 9639-8622. The Brunswick Town Hall is on the corner of Dawson and Sydney Roads in Brunswick. Of course, there's ongoing... Um, protest here in um, Collingwood, a 24-hour protest for public housing where young people and homeless people really have been occupying a few properties and they need their support anytime. So just go to 18 Bendigo Street and offer your, offer your support, whether you take food or you talk to them. It's, it's of great uh, importance that we support these people against this homelessness in uh, Australia, the fourth richest country in the world. It's absolutely disgraceful. Okay, f- let's make some announcements on the federal uh, election. There's um, going to be a candidates forum on climate and sustainability for the seat of wills, and that will be chaired by Cinnamon Evans from Ceres, and they've organized this whole um, event, and they've got uh, Zane Alcon, our very own Friday breakfast presenter from Sochi's Alliance, and um, Tristram Cello from uh, the Sex Party, Camille Kennedy, Sido, Animal Justice Party, Peter Khalil, Australian Labour Party, Samantha Ratnam from the Greens, and it's at 7 p.m. Uh, for a 7.30 p.m. start at Coburg Concert Hall, Moreland Civic Centre, 90 Bell Street, and that's on the 30th of May, which is a Monday evening. So it meet the candidates for wills, organised um, by the uh, serious people, I think. World Refugee Day coming up. Close Manus, Close Nauru, 18th of June, Bring Them bring them Here is the slogan. It will be at the State Library in the city, Swanson Street. It's organized by the Refugee Action Collective.
And there's also a um, another election announcement where you've got uh, Zain Alcon is launching his campaign at the um, Anatolian Cultural Center, 195 Sydney Road, Coburg. And it's a candidate uh, introduction to candidates of the Socialist Alliance. And of course, I'll be there as I'm standing for the Senate against a declaration, I have to say. <clears throat> and Tim Gooden is standing with me. There will be food and drinks. And please stand up if you want to meet the candidates for Socialist Alliance standing in Victoria and in Wills. So that's the end of the announcements, and we shall go to Kevin Healy, the week that was, which is going to be fun, because you missed out last week, so enjoy. A week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when coincidence has been piled on coincidence, followed by, you guessed it, more coincidence. And what a coincidence that from the very day big Supremo Malcolm Tunnabull announced election, our neutral federal... Uh, sorry, protectors of law and order have by the day discovered terrorists just everywhere. How did we survive before he called election? No proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people we discovered are illiterate, innumerate, job-stealing doll bludgers, sponges on our goodness. OK, OK, there may be a technical oxymoron in job-stealing doll bludgers, but the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats Peter Duffer said so, so obviously there's nothing oxymoronic about Peter. Socialist Party ex-ministers and officers and employees are raided by the same neutral, caring business class protectors. Coincidence piled upon coincidence and Malcolm and Peter and Lord Rupert of Wapping all know to vote for anyone but the caring business class party would be untrue wazzy, perfidious, kowtowing to terror. Terror represented by the socialists, the Greens, anyone else we can think of. Senate inquiries would lead to more and more raids on those who indicate they might know where the bodies are buried. And with the terrorism and no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, almost all of whom are also terrorists, flooding this great country, there'd be bodies to bury just everywhere. And Malcolm and the team assure us all this is just pure coincidence upon coincidence upon coincidence because the government has nothing to do with any of this and for goodness sake, who but the most conspiracy theory paranoids would think it did? And the depressing reality is there's still five weeks of this election fever that has us so intrigued to go, relieved only by moments like... Well, a week when the Minister for Financing, the financiers, Matthias Rotten-Tuther, discovered Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy's shortened ambition was his lifelong hero, his newfound lifelong hero, if that not be a contradiction, which it probably is. The best thing the true blue Aussie economy has ever seen, the saviour of this country, the saviour we need, and the relief bit for us, that priceless moment when silly Matthias suddenly realised what he'd said and presumably was instantly contemplating the consequences. Oh, for a good Cuban cigar and a long-aged malt scotch when you need them, eh, Matthias? But while not having English as his first language can't be used as an excuse for getting little, little Billy and Malcolm a, a trifle mixed up, and given their policies that's understandable, it can maybe be an excuse for getting stuck into his newfound hero Little Billy with that stunningly brilliant election slogan, the socialist, Spend a meter! 
Oh, Matthias, okay, English mightn't be your first language. People comment how your Belgian sounds so like Afrikaan, but surely someone in the caring business class party could tell you it's spendometer. Spendometer, Matthias, come on. Still on the broad issue, mouthing slogans non-stop, sure as hell beats having to come up with real policies every time. Also a week with another giant mind deserving of every cent of the hundreds of thousands in salary and perks of our money he enjoys, Barnacle Joystick, informed us Indonesia in other people's business swapped human cattle for non-cattle. Cattle not slaughtered in Indonesia, Indonesia in, swapped for human cattle slaughtered by True Blue Aussie's commitment to the UN of the US of the UN of the world's conventions on refugees, on asylum seekers on the desperates fleeing wars and invasions, most of which involve true blue Aussie-trained killers, the coalition of the killing. Barnacle sending Malcolm and the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers, careering into salvage mode, telling us what Barnacle really meant, while Barnacle stood next to Malcolm, nodding intelligently that that's what he really meant, while they assured his mouth got Nowhere near a microphone. But I'd better clarify that UN of Refugee Convention bit, because these people escaping our trained killers, fleeing the coalition of the killing and the consequences of the coalition of the killing, are not asylum seekers. They are, as we all know, we well know, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people who deserve to rot in detention. Get into the queue, we say, uh, once you've worked out where the queue is, and if you do ever find it, let us know. Which brings us back to Peter Duffer talking of giant mines. I just want to, like, say I have been, you know, like, misinterpreted. Pete clarified what had been misinterpreted. When I said these ignorant, good-for-nothing, you know, lazy terrorist illegals coming here are illiterate, innumerate terrorist dole bludgers stealing our jobs, I was like defending these lawbreakers. I was saying I am, you know, like the perfect example of how an illiterate, innumerate, like, you know, person can get a job. Well, thanks, Pete, for clarifying that, being positive, showing that people can get jobs in this society despite a severe mental handicap. We haven't heard yet how cruel these people are to their own children, drowning them and all that, but there's weeks to go. It'll come. Just on that seeming oxymoron, Pete, how can they be stealing jobs in which they obviously don't have to read or add up and be doll bludgers at the same time? Er? Uh? Well, thanks to Pete for clarifying that one. We've also seen, while our white sages, experts on the Terranullius people in Canberra and sundry state governments celebrate Sorry Day, Reconciliation Week, by outlining their latest uh, policies for the Terranullius people. Because white experts have to determine what's good for Terranullius people, because the Terranullius people are Terranullius people and don't exist, and had no right to come to this white country in the first place, or not come because they're not here. 
And in the real world, the white world, thankfully there is some common sense, some light at the end of, some community responsibility left in the trade union movement. And congratulations to the Shopping the Workers Union for realising penalty rates hurt the caring big retail employers, the behemoths it represents. While giving the kids down at McDonald's a lesson in exploitation, good for their character. The Shopping the Workers Union feels it important that young people starting out on their work lives comprehend just how exploitation in the workplace can hurt caring employers. How award rates, for instance, cripple great caring employers like McDonald's, increasing the cost of the rubbish they serve to the fat slobs or potential fat slobs who eat it. And that is why we have, in the interest of that comprehension by those young people, people slash the award rates on their behalf or more correctly agreed our members should accept sub award rates and crippling conditions spokesperson Jack Ratt explained the shopping the workers union believes in educating workers to exploitation through exploitation now on such matters, given the election was called prematurely a double disillusion because getting a crush the building union's jackboots con mission was so urgent, then obviously it's been front and centre of all caring business class party policies and electioneering. Other than the oh-so-urgent raison d'etre for calling the election has sunk without trace, hasn't been mentioned. What happened to the urgency listener? Because we know evil unions haven't stopped being evil unions, become less evil, haven't followed the long-term responsible example of the shopping the workers' union. And on brilliant mind, MP stuffing up their party's free-flowing spin doctoring, congratulations to Socialist Party MP David Phoney for making a huge contribution to eradicating homelessness altogether. No, seriously, let's be fair. When you've got as many investment properties as David, anyone can forget you own a two million plus home, particularly given it's in his electorate, something he surely doesn't want to be reminded of other than when he wants them to vote for him but not make demands which would distract him from his important real work as a right-wing party, uh, numbers party hack. And who'd believe David Phoney's support for abolishing negative gearing is phony? After all, our policy allows those of us currently ripping off to keep ripping off. And the government supports mums and dads investors like David win-win. And as the fossils continue to save the earth, drag the poor out of poverty, the Worldwide Fund for Nature has revealed parts of the Antarctic have already suffered a three-degree increase in temperature. Well, that will open it up for the fossils that caused it, like the Arctic is opening up for the fossils who caused it, who can get more fossils to cause. Well, well not cause, because they know there is no such thing as climate change, except when they want to sell those products they tell us will counter climate Climate change, win-win. See Mikey, that oh-so-popular brainwave of former Socialist Party giant mine Nunawadding Pete, is introducing tap-and-go credit card technology. Surely it should be called tap-and-go eventually, perhaps, possibly. And finally, brick batch to Médecins Sans Frontières for indirectly criticising the aforementioned giant mind Peter Duffer. 
Monday and Tuesday there was a world humanitarian summit and MSF boycotted it, claiming many of the, of the participant countries are themselves abusers of human rights. And and Liz, uh, how's this for long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work and an iron nonsense? Liz, true blue Aussie, accusing true blue Aussie of practising cruelty while hiding behind a fig leaf of good intentions. What's your response to that, Pete? Uh, thanks, Pete. Let's put them in their place. Good morning. Um, Radiothon starting up early June for 3CR, and we need all your support. Um, you can start donating now. You just got to ring the station, 94198377, and make your contribution. Um, you can walk into the office uh, on Smith Street to make a direct contribution if you like. So keep that in mind. Okay, we have Kishan um, Karapanen on the, on the phone. Um, from all the way from Wollongong. And Kishan is an MD, um, and he is also a lecturer in anthropology in um, Wollongong University. And here to talk about an un- unusual uh, topic, um, technology um, among the Aboriginal community, and is a Aboriginal Springs possible, or maybe imminent even. So let's welcome Kishan. Hi, Kishan. Hi. Good Hello. morning, Kishan. How are you today? Good, good thanks. And there's Kieran here as well. Hi, Hi Kieran. <laughs> How are you? Good. That's good. A bit chilly this morning. It's a bit like Melbourne weather up here in Wollongong. Yeah. Yay, long live Melbourne. <laughs> it's freezing this morning on the train. <laughs> yes, Melbourne is freezing today, and, and who knows what will happen tomorrow. Could be 36 tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Kishan. <clears throat> now, we're going to explore these notions you put forward, um, your work, your research methodology, and um, your work with Aboriginal people in understanding the social life of um, mobile technology and social media. And at a timely discussion, at a time when we've got Reconciliation Week and a Sorry Day the, on, on Friday, no, on Thursday. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, this is uh, this is an auspicious um, week. Uh, yesterday marked uh, the anniversary of the 1967 referendum, where over 90% of Australians voted to give the Commonwealth power to make laws for Aboriginal people. But mainly, it um, it opened up the um, the idea of, uh, or it gave Aboriginal people the idea of citizenship, and and this is really uh, a big, a big. Uh, it was a big, a big step, and. Uh, Living here in, in Darawal country in, in, in Wollongong, the land of the Darawal people, it makes me um, feel um, really special to to see the community celebrate, uh, commemorate, and uh, National Reconciliation Week and Sorry Day. I was actually um, about to um, travel up to Mona Vale uh, to the Baha'i Temple to listen to Stan Grant. Mm, he's good. And, uh, He's fantastic, mm. and uh, and his uh, and his book, you know, his second book, talking to my country, mm-hmm. that came about uh, from uh, from the Adam Goods um, um, incident, uh, in, uh, was in, was inspired by the Adam Goods case. Yes, in February 2016, was uh, something that I really wanted to to hear him talk about, and of course, I'd love him to sign the book for me, his book, <laughs> and, and see if Stan would like to come to the University of Wollongong and, and meet some of our students but, uh, and discuss what uh, I found was quite interesting, um, the um, Aboriginal Spring, not the Arab Spring, but the, but the Ar- Aboriginal s- 
spring and through the use of um, mobile phones and social media and creating this awareness and reaching out and talking to people and having everyday conversations by everyday people. Hmm. And, uh, this is what uh, sort of came out from the study. Can I can I say a bit more about... Um, Absolutely. I, Over to you, I, Kishan. Go for it. I was in. Uh, I was working for the Department of Health um, in uh, in the Northern Territory and um, working with youth and um, writing policy that made sexual health services more accessible to young people. Mm. And we we found that uh, um, that there was more opportunity opportunity to create services that were also not only just uh, accessible to non-indigenous youth but particularly indigenous youth. And so um, we we got as far as um, the usual posters and TV ads, and when we realized that indigenous youth were already part of the globalized world, not only being able to still hold on to their culture and their language in the, in the Northern Territory, but they were also communicating using mobile technology and and sharing their views and and consuming media via so, via social media, particularly Facebook and YouTube. So I moved to. Arnhem Land um, to the town of uh, Nulunboy, and I stayed in a in a smaller Aboriginal community thanks to the traditional owner, uh, Mr. Bakamumu Marika, head of the Rirachingu clan. I uh, stayed in a small community called Pilichibi, and there it was uh, it was where it all slowly began. In today's um, uh, research methods, we uh, we decolonize methodologies. Let's put it that way. We don't go in as experts. We don't have a list of questions on a clipboard. We don't. We don't just record voices verbatim. We don't. Uh, we don't <laughs> interpret things ourselves. So those were the those were the bad old days of research. Today, yes. we believe more. It, especially anthropology has evolved so much that today we feel that the uh, we know that. Uh, um, our, there are no such thing as research subjects. They're all research participants. They are co-researchers. And um, we work together to create knowledge. And this is beautiful. And this, is, uh, this was very inspiring um, to me, coming from Malaysia, being born into a, 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 and also an old and ancient culture, being Tamil. And, and um, for me, it was, it was a process of getting to know um, my own self, my own identity by listening to this um, listening to the beautiful stories that came from my Aboriginal friends and, and kin and um, and family that uh, you know eventually you become close to people. So uh, uh, it took about three years to gather uh, views and opinions and uh, and you don't you know you don't just um, take two or three people's opinions or the voices of the or the louder voices in the community. I think this is where. It's important as uh, as researchers that we also try and find some of the unheard voices, and this could be women, children, and of course men, men too. There are men who don't have a voice in communities, and and it's important that we uh, notice them and, and give them an opportunity to uh, to talk about their use of mobile technology and and social media, and um, and sort of learn how to uh, um, paint this this reality into words and describe it in a way that anyone else can pick up my thesis and read it and understand. So the language has to be important. The delivery has to be uh, humble and not autocratic or dictatorial or expert-led and 
Uh, and so it, it took a while for me to change my mindset from being this doctor uh, <laughs> yes. to, a, to a humble learner who knows that he knows nothing. And this is, you know, once again, we, come, we go back to the ancient uh, in, uh, um, Greek um, philosophers, you know, Socrates. Yes. Uh, only then did I realize once again that the um, that the unexamined life is truly not worth living. Yes, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so, not only did this become a research about uh, indigenous use uh, of mobile phones and technology, it became a, also a self-reflection on my um, on how I see the world um, and what what does what what matters. To me in this world? Do I really want people to be healthy? Do I want people to eat more vegetables? Is it all about reducing the price of broccoli? And is it about <laughs> taxing sugary drinks? And you know what? By the end of three years, I said, now, nah, this, this, this is good. This is important. And, and, and yes, this is a wing of public health and medicine that's, that's really crucial. But for me, it was about power. Mm, exactly. And that's what the crux of the matter is, isn't it? Because Aboriginal people today don't have the power. Yes. Um, until they organize, until uh, they, I have to say, hats off and complete 150% respect to the a community that has stayed fighting and, and fought hard to hold on to their culture despite over 200 years of oppression and deprivation and uh, a denial of their very existence, really. And the fact that you mentioned the um, uh, inclusion of them in the voting process, it's, it's to me almost insulting, although it's a positive move, almost insulting that they have to be recognized when they've been living here for over you know, six, 60,000 years. It's just mm. incomprehensible. The very concept for me is incomprehensible. You know, and I, it, it's, it's not surprising that you have found such an enormous wealth of um, various aspects in your exploration of this, this community and the similarities that lots of other com- ancient communities have with the Aboriginal community in Australia, how talented they are, how intelligent they are. And there was a study released, or actually a book released a couple of weeks ago, saying that, you know, the, the, the commonly understood notion that they were hunter-gatherers when the whitefellas arrived here, or invaded, yeah. to be correct. Um, they were actually much more technologically advanced. So yeah. I wonder if you want to comment on, on that sort of stuff. And when you say um, an Aboriginal spring, you know, you, you, you want to expand on that a little bit more too. Sure. Uh, let's start with the... Um, with the with, um so let's let's finish with the Aboriginal Spring idea. I think that uh, I think that what we see with this uh, with we have the recognised movement that's being um, funded and and promoted by the government and it's on media, it's on the it's on TV and it's uh, it costs money to produce. But then, thanks to social media, we have other um, Aboriginal um, groups, uh, youth especially, come together to voice their own ideas and um, and to challenge this recognised movement. And um, and this is this is for me um, a, a sign that uh, that uh, we are uh, Aboriginal people are continue to examine themselves and continue to examine and uh, critique the ideas of government and governance and um, and um, put forward uh, questions for all of us to think about and, and I think this is this is the spring that that is that needs to be um, cultivated and watered and we just need to move back and and let. Um, let them take over, uh, take over um, these channels and, and, and just uh, discuss things. But 
in terms of the technology um, and advanced technologies, I think this is, you know, we're we're entering the, um, I think we're transitioning slowly into the Anthropocene, the age where man rules everything or humankind rules everything and nature and whatnot. And, and um, I, I don't think it's good news, really, for climate change. Uh, I don't think it's good news for our species. But the fact that... Uh, Aboriginal people have been able to live in this land for 60,000 years without, um, but in harmony. It shows that uh, they don't cover the idea that they need to rule over the land. Rather, they live as part of the land. Mm, that's right. So it's, it's an interesting notion, isn't it? It's, it's something white people cannot even fathom. Yeah, I was watching a, a documentary at the LASNET um, filming last night that was about the um, indigenous people of Peru, and that's a very strong theme in their culture. You don't own land, land owns you. Mm. And then, yeah. uh, that's so true. I mean, when you look at the, um, the Yolngu kinship system, you see balance, you see check and balances put in place so that no one clan is stronger than the other. Mm. No one family is more powerful than the other. Mm. And, um, and this brings so much into, uh, into our idea of is, what is the meaning of empowerment? It's not to tell someone that, yes, you are just as intelligent as me. No, it is to step back and dissolve your own power. That's, that's, you have to create a void for mm. someone to move in. And mm. I think that sometimes we think that we can go in and um, educate and build capacity and therefore that is seen as empowerment. I don't, I don't think so. I think that you're still holding on to a very powerful position if you're educating others. That's so true, you know. I work in a profession where this is a constant irritant. <laughs> People like to take over. It's a concept of knowledge is power, so you hang on to that, even unconsciously. You know, you yes. hang on to it, and, and the way you put it is really beautiful, that, you know, you step back, create the void so that they can step in and do it in their own way, allow them to explore, allow them to discover whatever they want to discover, and we just yes. sit back and let that happen and be part of it or just stay out of their way, basically, isn't it? That's right. I mean, they are, a, they're, they're, Aboriginal communities have their own universities. They have their own anthropologists. They have their own theorists. They have their own marks. They have their own Lenins. They have, they have it. But unfortunately, the economy, the neoliberal consensus has forced them to become policy workers and yes. <laughs> translators and interpreters and... Uh, they're just minions being used by the system um, to give us the illusion that we are empowering them, really. But if we step back, you know, with mobile phones and social media, I say in my thesis that Aboriginal people have not had the time to theorize on the change that's been going on because they're constantly facing illness, chronic disease, early death at such young ages. Um, when are they going to have the time to sit down and really, especially the elders, to really sit and, and come up with um, the same level of uh, comfort and ideas that non-Indigenous people in Australia can sit in wonderful, beautiful offices and, and think and write and, and, and theorize. I think that this is, this is a void here. Yes, that, um, it, it brings, brings to my mind the word assimilation. Mm. This, this dominant system has to change this ancient culture to fit, fit into their formula or formularic you know, yeah. notions of what, we should be doing, and what we should, what we are doing, is being subjects of capital. You know, we being yeah. shaped and um, asked or demand is there for us to function for the benefit of profit making. Whereas Aboriginal okay. people don't even think about that concept. They are striving to live in harmony with 
the land or part of the land or product of the land, as you put it here. And it's, it's a whole, whole different concept of viewing life and the world, isn't it? It's so true. Um, the um, famous French uh, philosopher Michel Foucault said it's not just important to liberate ourselves from the state, but to liberate ourselves from the individualization that it has created over the last two centuries here. Mm. So this is going to be, and of course, that self-examination helps us, um, helps us do that to think, okay, this is what capitalism has created of me, although I'm a member of an ancient culture with traditions, law, kinship, uh, then how do I reconcile this? How do I make it both work? Because both has to work uh, eventually. Um, some form of uh, governance uh, will is going to continue for the next, you know, hundred years. For example, how do we how do we make this work? How can we help Aboriginal people or step back, you know, for Aboriginal people to stop being defined as a population but as people? That's right. <laughs> well put. <laughs> and this is Tim Rouse. This is Professor Tim Rouse, who's an anthropologist, and this is from his uh, a quote from his book, uh, Rethinking. Rethinking social justice. He said that you know we talk about them as peoples when we are when we um, when we humanize Aboriginal people when we buy their art when we yes. when we watch them on TV and we we talk to them as we, we see them as peoples. But when it's time to talk about their health, their welfare, their um, their future in this country, um, the sharing of power with Aboriginal people, we see them as a population, and this population is defined only by a couple of variables. One is their low socioeconomic disadvantage, um, and, uh, and of course, the dark history. And nobody wants these, these stereotypes on Aboriginal children. Nobody wants it anymore. But how do we stop doing this, you know? For me, the, the, the one factor that, that governs the whole picture you've painted is the racism that's, that emanates from the philosophy that capitalism engages in that is divide and rule. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's subjected to, to the survival of capital to be able to destroy um, the concepts that, that you put forward and the Aboriginal people have uh, to be able to access resources. So it, it, they, they reduce it to dig up and sell concept really, yeah. whereas yeah. Aboriginal people have a much more complex interpretation of the world and how they live as part of the land. It's, it's, it's such a fine definition and explanation that it, it, you know, it, it warrants a lot of thinking. Mm. Really yes. does. Mm. But it's, you know, mm. um, until this has been uh, going on since the 18th century when the oh, Swiss, no. uh, <laughs> you know, the Swiss scientist Linnaeus categorized human, human beings into four types, Europeus, Americanus, Asiaticus, and Afa, the black person, who they, who they identified as being slow, lazy, uh, likes to relax. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> and this is, and this is what gave, uh, you know, this is what, created that momentum hey you know if this is what this is resulted in terra nullius so oh you're not you're not working on your land so i'll take it from you you know this is to justify we justify these things mm. to ourselves when we when we go uh, and, and this is uh, uh, capitalism is this beast that lets us dehumanize dehumanize the children in asia who make those cheap t-shirts yes. which uh, we want to have 50 of mm. not two Yes. Um, it feeds on our greed. It feeds on our innate uh, human nature to be uh, to want and to own and to overpower others. And I think capitalism is uh, is thri thrives 
when uh, these qualities are still inherent in humanity, the need to overpower others and to be greedy, to be individualistic. Mm. Um, we, uh, we've got another, another couple of minutes, uh, Kishan. Anything um, else of those uh, wonderful ideas you've been talking about you want to, to conclude with? <laughs> I, I would um, thank you, thank you for this opportunity. And I think the most important thing, um, the most important for me and what I carry in my heart is the work of uh, of the Yolngu men and women. And I would like to talk about the Marika family, especially the the the, uh, the forefathers uh, Maolan Maolan Marika and and his daughters and his sons and uh, and Maolan Marika who taught his daughters how to paint Aboriginal art, how to create Aboriginal art, which was not part of the Yolngu culture. Only men were allowed to, to make art. But when when uh, the great Maulan Marika saw potential for his daughters to create their own economy and to be independent and to, to look after their families, he altered that he broke that culture and taught his daughters how to paint. His daughters' paintings are, are famous. They're, they're, they're known to hang on galleries all over the world. And when I see and read about Maulan Marika and his descendants, Milirpum, who fought uh, in the Nabalko versus Milirpum case, and his descendants who still fight for Aboriginal rights in Arnhem Land. I'm inspired by the fact that that um, nothing can stop the Yolngu and nothing can stop Aboriginal people from moving um, into the future, and um, and they will um, they will reclaim their space in this country. And I hope that I will live long enough to see that happen. Wonderful uh, conclusion to that discussion, and especially um, the week of reconciliation. And as you said, it's the anniversary of um, the Aboriginal people to, to be able to vote. And a couple of days after Saturday. Thank you so much, Kishan. Thank and, you. Um, thank you, Thank, you, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. See you. Bye-bye. Okay. That um, brings us to the end of the show. And let's thank Kieran, who's here, who came to talk about uh, 3D printing and the uh, solution to so-called the ills of society. <laughs> and uh, thanks. Very tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> well, that's what the proponents say, so we haven't to say what they think is, you know, such a what I call it Superman complex. Well, well know, the, the title was very... Very tongue-in-cheek of my paper, <laughs> 3D printers, the third industrial revolution and the demise of capitalism. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> if only it was as easy as that. Very familiar. If only. <laughs> okay, and of course we had uh, Scott Jordan from Tasmania, who um, is the uh, one of the uh, people who leads the Save the Tarkayan campaign and is a candidate for the Greens in the lower house in Tasmania in the elections coming up. And uh, Kevin Healy, a uh, regular satire contribution and um, <clears throat> we had Kishan Karapanan just there talking about um, the contents I guess of the history of the Aboriginal people's struggle uh, in this country and thanks to Kishan 